So I don't think it'll be uh, a newsflash for anyone. Um, life is difficult. It wouldn't take much for any of us to come up with a list of afflictions and miseries that plague our nation and the world today. In fact, you're probably thinking of this, some of them right now. And in one way or another, we all feel their effects. And even if our own lives are relatively trouble-free like that, little ones, um, <laughs> just dwelling on the big issues, just thinking about them can make us anxious. Then there are those times when we do face painful difficulties in our own lives or those of loved ones. And sometimes the ones in loved ones we hurt even more <laughs> over, in fact, Yet in the midst of these difficulties, as we've been uh, exploring over the last several weeks uh, in the Gentle and Lowly series, uh, and by the way, if you're visiting with us today, please take one of those books from the welcome table. We want you to have that because we want you to know if there's one thing we really want you to know about Jesus, it's what he said about himself. And um, it's a very good book. Yet in the in the midst of these difficulties, God wants us to know, to be certain that he's with us. He wants to tell us that he suffers with us and that he wants to help us by affirming his heart of love for us. Did you hear that phrase again in the psalm today, steadfast love? Hesed? Such an amazing thing that it just goes on and on and on and on. If we were to stand and share gratitude memories today, I'm positive that we could make a strong case that God's love is actually most persistent and present to us when we're in the midst of working through difficulties and sufferings that we all face. And that reality is spelled out really clearly in this week's epistle reading from St. Peter's letter to the Romans. We actually looked at the second half of this reading last week uh, as just finishing up that series. And we're going to look at the first part of it today. You've got that also in your bulletin. Reflecting on his own life, even as he sketches out God's overarching plan of salvation, Paul wrote, not theoretically or abstractly, but from his own long firsthand experience. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces proven character, and, and character, proven character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint because God's love his hesed has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In that one sentence, Paul reveals how God's heart of love helped him grow in faith and holiness during his own times of suffering, which were many. He discovered the fortifying and liberating truth that God's gentle and lowly heart, his, his hesed for his own, is the one constant guiding them 
through the inevitable sufferings of life and making them more like Jesus, which is the goal of our Christian life on earth. I want to take a closer look at that, the verse that I just read, but because um, it, it, it describes basically three attributes of sanctification that can be produced in us as we deal with suffering and affliction. But before we look at these specific verses, we shouldn't ignore the fact that Paul prefaces them with four foundational assurances for the children of God. Who are the children of God? Well, Jesus tells us, in his, or John tells us, in um, John 1.12, right at the beginning of his gospel, to those who believed in him and received him, to them he gave, do you know what the next words are? The right to be called the children of God. So this is who Paul is writing to. And it's, it's important that we know that because these are not promises for everyone. So four foundational assurances uh, that we've actually looked at repeatedly over the last few weeks from Romans 5, 1 and 2. You've got it there. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We could spend a lot of time just picking these things apart because there's a ton of theology packed into those two verses. We are justified by faith. We have peace with God. We have access by faith into the grace of God, which gives us standing with him. And we have the promise of eternal glory. Thanks be to God. It was vitally important to Paul that we be reminded and assured that God's steadfast love is at work in us before we ever get to dealing with inevitable suffering. He wants us to live in that assurance. And it's on that foundation that he's able to say that we can endure and even flourish through the afflictions or tribulations that are sure to come our way. It's true, maybe more true than ever today, for a lot of reasons that even the most sincere and devout followers of Jesus, when they face trials of life, can present real and serious challenges to their faith. But because we are already in Christ, Paul would argue, I think, trials also have the potential to help us press on and actually grow in faith and Christ-likeness. Despite what we're experiencing temporally, they can become opportunities to strengthen our trust, to temper our trust and hope in the Lord. And just as it says in Hebrews 5.8 that Jesus himself learned obedience through what he suffered, we too can grow in godly virtue as we face our own sufferings with endurance and faith. And so Paul goes on in verses 3 through 5, not only that, not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we 
totally counterintuitively, we rejoice in our suffering. Why? Because of what it can produce in us. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces proven character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Paul talks about kind of three attributes of sanctification here. The first attribute that suffering can produce in us is endurance. And the thing about endurance is it, it can only be produced one way, by enduring. At our, at our uh, synod this year, I and another uh, pastor uh, led the ordinands retreat, and one of the guys who's an ordinand and getting ready to go uh, to Ethiopia to serve in Ethiopia as a missionary is a, an endurance runner. And just that week, he had completed a 12-mile endurance, or 12, sorry, that's 12-hour endurance race. 12 miles, I couldn't do. Two miles probably. But um, that's beside the point. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally blown away that he could run. I, I think maybe it was 50 miles, 60 miles, this race, something like that. So I asked him, I said, man, how in the world did you, did you do that? And he said, by enduring and then enduring more. He just built up to it. He said, kind of like an, eating an elephant, one bite at a time. You can only learn endurance through endurance. So if something happens in life that's hard and painful and frustrating and disappointing, and you don't simply sigh and submit to it as an inevitable evil, or you don't give in to catastrophizing and bitterness and resentment and complaining, which because of a kind of existential brittleness seems to be our cultural default today. But rather, by grace, your faith looks to Christ and his power and his sufficiency and his fellowship and his wisdom and his love. And as the one who endured betrayal and endured hatred and violence and even death, then your faith can persevere and endure. It becomes stronger, more resilient, the way tempered glass is stronger. It takes much more to break it. I actually have some personal experience with this. Uh, when Lauren and I were living in downtown Annapolis, our second kitchen was Tsunami on West Street. And um, they had the best happy hour and a half of any restaurant that we have uh, ever been to. And COVID totally ruined it. Um, but we used to eat there about once a week. And one night we tromped over there. We could just walk there from our house. I locked the door behind me. And every key we had was inside. <laughs> so we get home and I'm, you know, petting my pockets. And Lauren, did you, did you have a key to the house? And she says, I didn't even bring my purse. I don't, I don't have my purse with me. So I, I thought I could, I could bust the door down, like destroy all of this woodwork that I'd been doing in this house for months. Or I could just bash one of the little 
window frames out on our back door. So I went out to my shed and got a ball peen hammer. I don't know if you remember this. And I tried with a ball peen hammer for five minutes to break the glass on that door. I could not do it. I was I whacked it and whacked it and whacked it, and it would not break. Turns out, tempered glass, which this door was made out of, is 300 times, no, three. 300%, sorry, I gotta get this right, 300% stronger than regular glass. I mean, it, it's, it's made, I don't know if you know how they temper glass, but they heat it up just to its melting point, just before it melts, and then they cool it quickly. And it literally changes the molecular structure of the glass. Suffering is the fire tempers faith. So when Paul says suffering produces endurance, he means that the fiery tests of trouble are meant by God, which is hard for us to receive sometimes. Meant by God to make your faith less brittle and more resilient. We could never develop endurance, in fact, if our lives were trouble-free. Suffering produces endurance. The second attribute is this. Perseverance produces proven character. Verses 3 and 4. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces proven character. The word proven is bracketed in this uh, paper that you have here because it's not used in the uh, English Standard Version, but the Greek word puts all of the emphasis not just on the character, but character that has actually been tried. It has been proven. It's been tested. Like tempered glass, it's, it's authentic or genuine or proven. That's the sense here. When you go through tribulation and your faith is tested and it endures, what you get is a much greater sense of its provenness. Your faith is real, it's been tested, it's stood the test with endurance and therefore real, authentic, proven, and genuine. Proven character then produces the third attribute, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Verses three through the beginning of verse, verse three through the beginning of verse five. Suffering produces endurance and endurance produces proven character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint. Hope is commonly used today to communicate little more than a wish. Its strength is only the strength of the person's desire, in fact. But in the Bible, hope is the confident expectation of what God has promised and its strength is his will. Ordinarily, when we express hope, we're actually expressing uncertainty, like, man, I, I really hope the car doesn't break down when Lauren and I drive to Florida tomorrow, which we are, and I hope. But this is not the distinctive biblical meaning of hope. Biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. And not only expects it to happen, it's confident that it will happen. There's a moral certainty that the good we expect and desire will be done. 
It's moral. I say it's moral because it's rooted in the commitment of the will. And the will is the seat of morality. That is, we can only speak of moral right and wrong in relationship to what we do. Acts of will. So literally, whatever has to do with the will is an issue of morality. And moral certainty is a certainty that's based on acts of will. Now, if I lost any of you in that, let me just illustrate. I have a strong moral certainty, a hope in biblical terms, that Lauren and I will remain married to each other as long as we both shall live. This isn't based on mathematical laws or logical syllogisms. It's not like two plus two equals four or all people are mortal and Steve is a person, at least I assume, um, and therefore Steve is mortal. It's not like that. It's based on the character of our wills and the promises of God, which are nothing more than the expressions of the character of his will. And on August 16th, if we last that long, kidding, <laughs> we will have had 43 years of evidence about the nature and commitments of both our wills and the graciousness of God's will. When we speak of our future, we don't speak in modern terms of hope. We don't say, for example, we hope we don't get divorced or more likely murder each other. We speak in terms of confidence and certainty because the character of a God-centered will is like iron. But of course, we could be wrong, couldn't we? Yes, and every atheist in the world could convert to Christianity this afternoon, and it could be that not a single deceptive word will fall from any politician's lips this election cycle, and every porn producer could go out of business by summer's end because men will have gained mastery over their lustful desires. All of that could happen. Why then do we have, every single one of us, have a strong confidence that these things will not happen? because we know a thing or two about the human will. There's a kind of certainty that comes from knowing the character of a person or a group of people or a wife or a husband. It's not infallible, but it is secure and confident. It lets you sleep at night. And it carries you over rough times, and eventually it can see you right through to the grave. Biblical hope isn't a mere desire for something good to happen. It's a desire and a confident expectation for something good in, in uh, the future. Biblical hope has moral certainty in it because it's based on the will of God expressed in his promises. When the psalmist says in Psalm 42, 5, he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you so disquieted within me? Hope in God. It doesn't mean cross your fingers. It means, in the world, words of William Carey, expect great things from God. Hope is a unique virtue in the Christian faith because, as Paul says here, hope does not disappoint. 
Disappointment. Man, that can shape us in significant and destructive ways, whether you've been profoundly disappointed or feel like you've been a disappointment to someone, either to another person or to God. The wounding of disappointment is, I believe, too heavy of a load for the human soul to bear. And part of understanding what Paul is saying here is found in the word itself. Think about it. Disappoint. Here's the simple version. Dis is to negate. And appoint comes from appointment. It's to see what's going to happen in the future. So what does the word disappoint assume? That we can see or appoint the future. Which seems to be starting from a point of presumptuousness. Disappointment is literally when our vision of the future fails to materialize. I love this book I, I shared with you a while back, The Valley of Vision. I've been reading through these prayers, and Randy's been reading them, and another a couple of guys have been sharing these prayers from each other. But one of the, one of the prayers that I've been reading over and over again in the last several weeks is a prayer called Repose. And it's got this line in it that I'm trying to give a lot of attention to. Keep my wishes from growing into willings, my willings from becoming fault-finding with thy providences, and have mercy on me. So a lot of times what we do is we, we have these wishes, and then they become our will, our expectations, and then we find fault with God for not fulfilling them. I'm very prone to this. Lauren will tell you that one of the most common things ever said about me is Steve loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. My wishes often grow into willings. But disappointment is literally when our vision of the future fails to materialize. Hope, especially biblical hope also, and optimism are not synonyms. Optimism, which is considered a great virtue in our culture, is actually a recipe for disappointment because it paints a picture of the future that's not rooted in moral certainty. It comes from the Latin word optimum, which means the best. It means despite reality, the best thing will happen. Biblical hope, however, is rooted in the reality of God's character. I, I really have come to see optimism as Stanley Hauerwas sees it, a false virtue. Because it, as he says, does not pay attention to the truth. And the truth is what we simply cannot see. The truth is that we simply cannot see or control what will happen tomorrow. I, this passage in James uh, 4, 13 through 16 says this. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city and spend a year there carrying on business and make money. Why do you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. So if I'm ever getting ready to meet with you and you ping me to say, hey, are we still on for 9 o'clock this morning? And I respond, yes, I'll be there, Lord willing. 
I'm not being overly spiritual. I'm actually being, I'm actually living in reality. Because the reality is that we don't know what even the next instant will bring. God alone sees the future. Which is why God is never disappointed. In fact, unlike us and the people around us, it's impossible to disappoint God. When things go off the rails, God can be grieved. In Genesis 6, for example, he was grieved over the spreading stain of sin. In verses 5 and 6 of Genesis 6, he, it says this, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was grieved. Ephesians 4.30, of course, tells us that it is possible for us to grieve the Holy Spirit. But there's a whopping difference between disappointment and grief. When the unforeseen and tragic happens, believers grieve, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, but with hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the kind of hope Paul is talking about here doesn't have to do with a plan or, or an expectation that we... Let me read that line again because I must have been really sleepy when I wrote it. Because the kind of hope Paul is talking about here... Oh, yes. Because the kind of hope Paul is talking about here doesn't have to do with a plan or expectation we can't control. I should have read a little farther. It has to do with a person. I had a professor that used to distinguish, helpfully, I think, between hope for and hope in as a means of discerning the difference between human hopes, however exalted, and hope in God. It does seem true that no matter how profound our human hopes for something, they can be unrealized and just leave us raw and wounded. This doesn't mean that we don't or shouldn't have desires and expectations. And certainly there are things we can and should work to influence. And this is working to influence those things is what Arthur Brooks calls the labor of hope. But disappointment comes from desiring to control what we cannot control. I have a good friend who says his favorite book in the Bible is Habakkuk, which he calls one of the most hopeful books in the Bible. Habakkuk is one of the 12 minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. It's just three short chapters of dialogue between Habakkuk and God. So if you want to read a whole book of the Bible today, read Habakkuk or Jude or Philemon or something, <laughs> short books. It's just three chapters of dialogue between Habakkuk and God, the point of which is God is just and merciful, even though his people may not always understand his ways, and that wickedness will eventually be punished, and the righteous will ultimately see God's justice. This is how it begins, verses 1 through 4, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? 
Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And the Lord's answer to Habakkuk comes in the very next verse, verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astonished, for I will do a work in your days that you would not believe if told. In other words, put your hope in me, not in what's happening around you. Watch what I will do. And Habakkuk took it to heart because this is how the, dial, the dialogue ends three chapters later. It's the last few verses, three, three verses in the book. Three, starting at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the, yield, the fields yield no food. The, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will make joy the, in the God of my salvation. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the sovereign Lord, is my strength. See, Habakkuk believed that hope had to do with a person. His heart's desire and longing, of course, was that there would be figs on the tree, grapes on the vine, olives for oil, crops in the field, and an abundance of sheep and cattle. And he would work and plan toward those things and live in hopeful expectation. But he also needed the... He also knew that these were things he could not control. And he, he lived with the confidence that whatever befell, it would be all right. Because my hope, he says, is not for these things. My hope is in the sovereign Lord. Christians have also always believed that hope ultimately had only to do with a person. It says in Hebrews 12 too, let us fix our eyes not on ourselves, our desires, our expectations, or our plans, but on Jesus. Let us fix our eyes in Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, which gets us right back to where we started. The foundational assurances at the beginning Romans 5 because this is where hope lies in the person and work of Jesus and we must never ever take our eyes off of him because anything else is disappointment thanks be to God